Let's go to God in prayer before we start. Father, I thank you for this blessed time once again. You are amazing that you have given us this day to, 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 to rest, to worship, to come before you, Lord God, and just lay it all bare, to cast our burdens away and to, to trust that your son truly has did it. He said, it is finished. For all who believe in me, I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Thank you, Lord. And this is the day we come together and we, we are reminded of what we have in Christ. We are, we are uh, encouraged to go forth knowing that you walk in the midst of your churches, Lord God, and you bless and you comfort and you watch and you rebuke and you convict. And your spirit works within all who trust in you, Lord God, that we know we are here for, for a purpose, to honor you with our lives, to glorify you on earth, to speak to others about the good news that Jesus saves. So at this time, I pray that you would help me, Lord God, to uh, preach clearly, um, to, 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 to be careful with my words. And I, I truly need your spirit, Lord, to work in me, upon me, through me and that your spirit would convict those who hear, that it would comfort those who are listening close, that it would be uh, uh, something that would teach them as they go forward, Lord, something to uh, use out in the world, that they may be a blessing to others. It is in your blessed son's name that we pray. Amen. If you will, open your uh, copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. If you're using the Pew uh, Bible, that's page 810. Page 810. There's a Latin phrase called lex talionis. Lex talionis. It's the, it's the principle of how you retaliate. It's the law of retaliation where you do not go overboard in wanting revenge, and it was given to judges, the magistrate, uh, a long time ago, in order to regulate uh, behavior. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We see that in scripture, but it was before uh, Moses penned those words in the Old, Te Old, Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Um, you can see it in the uh, Code of Hammurabi, 17th century BC. You can see it in other cultures a couple hundred years before that. But it worked its way all the way down to uh, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. And it would play a huge part in the things that Jesus is about to say in the text we're going to cover uh, today. So follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. This is the holy word of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In the Bible, 
The law of retaliation is one of the first civil laws that God gave to his people. We see it in Exodus 21, uh, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. However, in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he is not specifically addressing the text from Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25, uh, where you have this instance, this scenario of these men fighting. And if one of these men happened to hit a pregnant woman, justice would have to take place, proving even way back then without ultrasound, they knew a life was inside of the mother. So if, if the baby is born and there is no problem with the baby, no injury, nothing then the magistrate, the judge, the ruler, would inflict a fine as he uh, should so determine. However, if there was harm to the baby, Exodus 21, 22 through 25 says that that person who hit the mother and injured the baby shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot, wound for wound, so forth, and so on. So we see the, uh, 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 the law of retaliation in effect. But neither is Jesus dealing with the next uh, text concerning the law of retaliation in Matthew chapter 5. We see in Leviticus chapter 24 verses 19 to 20 where Moses told the people, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person, that same injury shall be given to him. As we go to the Deuteronomy 19 text, Jesus is not specifically speaking of that portion of scripture. Where in verses 16 to 21, it says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest, and the judges who are in office in those days. And the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Once again, the law of retaliation, lex talionis, would go into effect. In all of these passages, the law was given as a rule to regulate the decision of judges. Now, verse 1 of Exodus chapter 21 sets forth the context. It says, now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. And, of course, the word for rules means judgments. These commands were for regulating the procedure of judges and magistrates in the decision of cases and the trial of criminals. But instead of confining it to the magistrates, the Jewish leaders over time made it the rule by which someone could get their own revenge. They considered 
they considered themselves justified by this law to personally inflict the same injury on others that they had received. So in our text, Jesus is not specifically addressing any of those scriptures, but how the people were misinterpreting those scriptures. When he says, you have heard that it was said, he's saying the things you have been taught by your rabbis are wrong. They are inaccurate. So here we go once again with the Jewish leaders, a.k.a. the Sanhedrin, who claim to stand on the letter of the law, but in actuality, they twisted the meaning of the law to their own benefit. They totally neglected the aim and purpose of the law. As originally uh, given, the law of retaliation was meant to restrain the vigilante justice that promoted personal revenge. If the judgments were declared by the magistrate as intended, then it would come from a neutral party who had the authority to grant a righteous judgment. The ruling was to bring balance and proper justice. Outrage, as we know, we all, I think, have been there. Outrage from personal vengeance destroys balance. Anger has a way of going overboard. While on the other hand, or the other end of the spectrum, passivity has a way of ignoring justice. All in the name of being nice. For the guilty party to pay less than an eye for an eye or more than a tooth for a tooth would make that judge or ruler guilty of being an unjust judge or ruler. In order to make sure offenders don't get away with disrespect and wickedness and to satisfy our own hardened hearts, I'm including us in that also, many of us also have a desire to take it out of the hands of the judges and make it a personal law. Some of us still will say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I have to pay them back. But what Jesus does in our text is reveal how someone who has encountered the grace of God, that plays a big part. He deals with someone who's, who has encountered the grace of God and how they should respond whenever personal situations of harm happen to come their way. The overall theme of our text is, and if you're taking notes, I'll say it twice, the sacrificing of personal rights for the glory of God and the salvation of others. The sacrificing of personal rights for the glory of God and the salvation of others. Jesus tells the multitude and us four things we should do whenever we believe our rights have been within. First up, shame the disrespectful. In verse 39 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You know, there has been so much discussion on this verse over the past 2,000 years that I am tempted to jump over it and go right to the next verse, mainly for two reasons. Number one, you have probably heard this verse so many times 
that whatever you believe about it, most likely you already have your mind made up as to what you're going to do if someone slaps you on the right cheek. And nothing I say is going to change that. And number two reason I am tempted to skip, I was tempted to skip over it, is I may be wrong. I might be mistaken about my interpretation concerning this verse. So I want you to follow me with caution. And I can hear some of you whispering, I do that anyway. <laughs> Fine. Nevertheless, when Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil, meaning do not go against the one who is evil, I don't believe he's saying that he's against us using self-defense to protect ourselves, or more importantly, our loved ones from being harmed. I do believe self-defense is biblical and ingrained within the human makeup as we are created in the image of God. And I want you to think about this. As Jesus was about to go to the cross and depart from this world, he told his disciples in Luke 22, 36, you might want to write that down because you might need that. Luke 22 and verse 36, he told his disciples, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Why? Because he knew that as his disciples would be traveling dangerous roads in order to fulfill the Great Commission, there would be thieves and bandits looking for easy prey. So he's telling them, now that I'm going away, you need to protect yourselves as you spread the good news that I save. Jesus saves. He said, even if you have to sell your cloak, and that's important right there. We're going to see more why in a minute, but, but the cloak was one of the more expensive garments that they had. It was much needed. But if you didn't have something to defend yourself, it wouldn't do a dead man any good. So sell it, Jesus said, and get yourself a sword. Now, even way back in Exodus chapter 22, we get a glimpse of God's attitude towards self-defense. In Exodus, Exodus 22 and verse 2, it says, If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. Two basic principles are taught from this text. Number one, the right to own private property. And number two, the right to defend that property. However, as we go through our text today, we have to learn the difference between self-defense and self-glorification. That's when our rights become the most important thing in the world. We have to be careful. There's self-defense and then there's lifting ourselves up to this place where nobody better take anything that I have. This covetousness that creeps in, you have to be very weary of that. And that's what Jesus is going to bring out from this text. So I don't want you to forget the overall theme. The sacrificing of personal rights for what? For the glory of God and the salvation of others. The lesson that Jesus is teaching in our text is, is that for the most part, 
We ought to refrain from asserting our rights and rather put the need for the salvation of others first for the glory of God. It's the difference between being a servant of God and a servant of self. So as we go over this text, before trying to, to decipher what this means for me, first try to understand what are the implications of Jesus' words to his people within that culture. In our Bible study, that should always be where we start in observation. What is the writer communicating to the people in that day, at that time? So we take note of the time period, the first century. We take note of the location, Rome. We take note of whom he was addressing in first century Rome. It was to the Jewish population living in the midst of Roman oppression that he said, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Two things to keep in mind once more. Number one, in that part of the world, the act of slapping someone on the right cheek was routinely done by a superior to an inferior. For example, a master to a slave, a guard to a prisoner, an adult to a child, a soldier to a citizen, and unfortunately, a man to a woman. The proper way to reprimand someone was to take your right hand and backslap them across their right cheek. Jesus told the people, if that should happen to you, turn to him your left cheek also. Why? This would present the one who slapped you with a serious dilemma. Whenever anyone was slapped on their right cheek in public and turned their other cheek towards his or her superior and was struck again, the victim would be seen as being the better of the two, the more righteous one, which meant something back then. This would bring shame to their assailant. It's the same thinking behind what Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Rome. He said, if your enemy is hungry, and this is out of Romans chapter 12 and verse 20. He said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, meaning you will bring him shame. And since the Jewish Christians were familiar uh, with the Old Testament text, they knew Yahweh would condemn their enemies in their shame. For instance, in Psalm chapter 35 and verse, verses 4 to 5, David said, let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Then in Psalm chapter 35 and verse 36, he said, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Also in Psalm chapter, chapter 44, verses 6 to 8, the psalmist wrote, for not in my bow do I trust nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Repeatedly, 
the scriptures tell us it is better to put your hope and trust in God who is able to deal with your enemies in far greater ways than you can. In Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 29, David's son Solomon wrote, Do not say I will do him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Solomon would have seen his father David in action, but he also would have seen his father's writings and could testify that it was God who saved Israel. Yes, my father is a great warrior, but I know that it is the God of Israel who saved us, who kept us. And God put them to shame, the ones who hated us. Feelings of revenge come naturally for us. Somebody hits you, you hit them back. There's this tendency to retaliate whenever someone harms us, but Romans 12 builds upon the foundation of grace and mercy that Jesus laid for us in our text today. Romans 12, uh, specifically uh, verses 17 to 19, says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's what it comes down to. When it comes to getting even, who are you trusting in? Yourself? Your, your verbal skills to put them in their place? Your education and status to humiliate them? Or is it your strength and ability to knock them out? Ultimately, these things won't always save you. Sooner or later, you are going to fail if you keep trusting and boasting in yourself. The Bible tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. The Bible also says, let the one who boasts, boast in who? The Lord. It is so freeing knowing you don't have to repay someone for what has been done to you. You don't have to scheme and plot and lose sleep of how you are going to get even. God is able to stand in the gap for your benefit. The one who trusts him, who loves him, who cries out to him, who, who, who seeks him. When nobody else will hear, God hears. God sees, and God is able to cause pain in someone's body that the doctors don't know where it came from. God is able to put a, a restlessness in somebody's heart. God is able to, 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 to ruin people's lives on a massive scale, but we want to play tit for tat and stand in the place of God as if we have no sin and as if, if, as if we are omniscient, omnipresent, and we can get someone back, and that's going to make us feel better. It does not work like that. God says, I know all. I can repay better than you. And like I said, it's like taking the shackles off and going forward for God's glory, not thinking about this person, just being free from that bondage. That should be enough 
for everyone who has had their sins paid for by Christ. That should be enough for everyone who is honest and knows that they have done wrong and God has given you a pass. And why do I say has given you a pass? Because the wages of sin is death. Anything less than that, God has given you a pass. So I hope that brings some clarity to verse 39 and the call to turn the other cheek to bring shame to our enemies and glorify God because I have to move on. But as we move on, we'll see that each one of these directives has the same goal. To bring shame on the evil and unrighteous by dying to self and living for the glory of God. I believe this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 10, 39, uh, when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You will actually know what it is to live for Christ when you don't try to get even all the time. The second thing we should do whenever we believe our rights have been violated is shame the false witness. Shame the false witness. In verse 40 of Matthew 5, Jesus goes on to tell the multitude, specifically those who call themselves his followers, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This was not a matter of someone winning a, a lawsuit against you justly, but under false uh, pretenses. Now, how can, how can I say that? Looking at the old uh, civil law, the judicial law, um, in Le Leviticus 19 and verse 15, Moses wrote, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So if someone lost their uh, tunic in a judgment against them because they were found guilty, whether they were rich or poor, they lost it fairly. The tunic was the undergarment closest to the skin, and the cloak was the outer garment, as most of you have figured out. But as I stated previously, it was the more expensive garment. The poor man, more man may have a few tunics to alternate daily, but only one cloak. They also would often use the cloak as a bed cover at night when it was a little chilly. But Jesus is saying, instead of contending with the scandalous person over your tunic, give them your cloak as well. If they won the rights to your uh, uh, undergarment, unjustly shame them by giving them your outer garment along with it. Hopefully, it's in the winter. So everyone can shame them when they see you shivering without any covering. To us, this makes no sense whatsoever. But under their laws of social justice in the Old Covenant, it is written, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. That's Exodus 22, verses 26 to 27. Now, although this is speaking of a pledge or something received as collateral, the fear of the Lord played a major part as to whether the new holder of the cloak would keep it. The fear of the Lord should play a major part in the decisions that the believer makes day to day. It should have some 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 uh, 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 motivation as to how you speak, how you think, and what you do. In those days, it did, for the most part. 
So the hope in our context of Matthew 5 is that the one who gained another uh, person's tunic unjustly would be shamed when given their cloak as well. Knowing that night would be coming and perhaps it was going to be a cold night, the fear that God would repay the evil act motivated some to return the tunic and the cloak before the sun went down. So here's the twist. What if they did it? What if they took the tunic from a false witness and then, hey, you're going to give me your cloak also? I'll take it. What if that happens or happens? Keep in mind, underneath everything that Jesus is saying, the mindset of the child of God is to be one that says, I am not going to hold on to my stuff so tightly that it appears to all who's watching that my hope and joy is tied up in the things of this world. You have to know by now that if you have told anybody you are a Christian, they are watching. And when calamity comes, and let's say you lose something unjustly, whatever, they're waiting, they're waiting and they're watching. How do you respond? Do you respond just like them? Are you cursing? Are you saying, oh, I have to get them back? I have to do this? What am I going to do? As if God can't bless you through this and teach you something about faith and trusting him and letting go of these worldly pleasures that we don't deserve in the first place. What happens when somebody takes your stuff? We cannot walk around bitter. We can't be mean-spirited because of some uh, item that God gave us out of his grace and mercy. And the Apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He touches on it uh, when he speaks about the court situation where you have brothers and sisters taking other brothers and sisters to court. What he says is, instead of taking your brother or sister to court, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And here's his reasoning why. You yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 and 8. The only person who has never defrauded anyone is Jesus. We, on the other hand, are all guilty of dealing with others wrongfully. So here's what we do. We confess that and trust that God is able to sustain us and even bless us in the midst of our loss. That's faith. Anybody can, can have the fruit of the Spirit when things are great. Oh, I'm such a loving person. Wait a minute. We're going to test that. It's coming around the corner. Oh, I have such peace right now. That's going to be tested. See, anybody can do that. The, the, the unbeliever can do that. But God has placed his spirit in you. So when this happens, I'm looking to God. And somehow, it's going to work together for good. I don't know how, but I'm going to go forward. I'm going to worship. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to pray. I'm going to meditate on his word. And I'm going to encourage another in the midst of my hurt. And I'm not denying that hurt can sometimes immobilize us and leave us stagnant sometimes. I'm not denying we have this fleshly nature still here, but we were imparted with a, a, a divine nature from God. We're not God, but he has granted us his Holy Spirit. So now we have this, this struggle, right? And, and you come into the faith. At that moment, you have entered the kingdom of God. You have been birthed into the kingdom of God. And this struggle happens. And we, we, we trip. 
like the five-month-old or the six-month-old, and you're trying to hold him up. And now at uh, uh, 11 months, he can make it from here to there. And in two years, he's walking around touching everything he shouldn't be touching. And he's growing and learning and watching, and he's watching you. What is his testimony about you? What does he say about you when those words start coming out at any moment? Of course, the first thing he's going to say is, no, that's what kids do. No, no. First word, right? And so you move on and you say, I have to be a better example. I have to honor God with my life. I have to glorify him. And then I have to live for the salvation of those God providentially placed in my life. My parents. I could have had other parents. But these are the ones that God has given me. My spouse, my friends, my co-workers, my children. Am I honoring God with my life? We have to trust that God is able to sustain us no matter what. God is able to lift us up no matter how many times we fall. And we look to him and we trust him. The third thing we should do whenever we believe our rights have been violated is shame the ruthless superior. Shame the ruthless superior. And I chose ruthless because I like the Hebrew meaning behind that word. And, 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 and ruth means friendship. Friendship. But what Jesus does now is he addresses those who would call themselves call themselves his follower, followers to show pure humility when they come across one of the most unfriendliest type of people they may ever see, the Roman soldier. In verse 41 of our passage, Jesus said, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In those days, at any time, you could be ordered by a Roman soldier to carry his equipment, his bags, whatever he needed you to carry, the legal limit of one mile. Most of the Roman soldiers were not friendly. Whenever they ordered members of the Jewish, the poor, or the slave population to carry their bags, they could be downright nasty the whole trip, the whole way. So imagine the shame and surprise when they reached the end of the mile and the person said, I'm willing to carry your equipment an extra mile. Like, what? After the way I treated you? The hope, and this is always the hope, is that they would be convicted by their wicked treatment of this person who's now helping them freely apart from the law. The hope is they would be so ashamed that they would one day turn to God who's working behind this person's humility and kindness and repent. That is always to be the goal of everything we do. Everything we do. Paul brought this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. He said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Meaning, even when it comes down to the most basic things in life, do them all to the glory of God. But then he continues. In verses 32 and 33 of 1 Corinthians 10, he tells us the reason why. He wrote, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. 
just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. It's the sacrificing of his personal rights for the glory of God and the salvation of others that Paul was seeking. Whatever we do, it must be for the glory of God and the salvation of others. And finally, the fourth thing we should do whenever we believe our rights have been violated is shame the covetous heart within. Shame the covetous heart within. In verse 42 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Does this mean we should give everything we have to everyone who comes begging? Our gracious, most benevolent Father doesn't even give us whatever we ask because he knows everything we ask for isn't good for us. Likewise, if we, if we were to give to everyone who begs whatever they ask, not only would we be destitute and maybe homeless, but we may actually be cursing and not blessing them with our constant gifts. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 gives wise counsel. When it says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We must not be enablers in the negative sense. Enabling laziness, enabling idleness, and creating a sense of entitlement. So what is Jesus commanding? We should view this command as an opportunity to imitate the Lord who gifts as we need. Out of love and a desire to be like Christ, we should prayerfully see in every request made to us at least three things. Number one, we should see it as an opportunity to be a vessel of blessing, an opportunity to be a vessel of blessing. First Timothy chapter six, verses 17 to 18 speaks to this. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. God has blessed us to bless others. That's why even any brother who is in Christ, who in his former life may have been a thief. In Ephesians 4, they are told to stop stealing, but rather do honest work with your own hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. The, the verse doesn't just say stop stealing. And the verse doesn't just Go and, and end that work with your own hands. But here's the purpose, that you may have something to give to someone in need. Instead of taking, you're giving. Instead of seeing how you can rob and steal and connive and, 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 and con someone into what you can get, work. And don't just get all you can can all you get and sit on your can. No, he says, give, give, 
Why? Because God has blessed you. God has taken you from someone who was just so self-centered, you had to just fill your own heart with everything you wanted. And he's turned you. God says, now you see me. And you see that I gave everything, my son. And I delivered you from death. And now you're walking in the light. So look like me and give. That's what love does. It gives. Lust takes. It takes. And it never satisfies. It can never satisfy. Secondly, being generous gives us an opportunity to fight covetousness from settling within. To fight covetousness from settling within. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's how important, important it is not to be covetous. If you believe covetousness, which is idolatry, is growing within you, start giving. Become more generous and more ready to share what God has blessed you with. It's called actively combating the sin of covetousness. And thirdly, we should give because God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't get better than that. God loves a cheerful giver. But according to the first phrase of that 2 Corinthians 9, 7 passage, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. We should never give out of legalism or external pressure. Legalism and external pressure is one of the very reasons Jesus had to keep saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Legalism and external pressure from the scribes and the Pharisees towards the common people was one of the reasons Jesus gave a series of seven scathing rebukes towards them in Matthew 23, a part of which we covered, uh, Anthony covered this morning in Sunday school, and Peter will be finishing next Sunday, God willing. In one of those rebukes, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, that's one convert, just one convert, you will travel far and wide. And when he becomes a convert, a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Legalism and external pressure takes someone who starts out wanting to do right. But over time, it makes them legalistic and hard-hearted. Sometimes more hard-hearted than the person who led them, quote-unquote, led them to God. Everything Jesus told the people to do in our text today brings about the exact opposite. Insulted, turn the other cheek. Sued unjustly for your possessions, let it go, and then some. If someone in authority forces you to do what's required, Go above and beyond freely. And always have a generous disposition. Be someone who's ready to share. Sacrifice your personal rights for the glory of God and what? The salvation of 
others. This is the story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole duty of man is summed up in two commands. Love God with your all and love your neighbor as you love yourself. The greatest way to fulfill these two commands is to do all in your power to lead someone to Christ. To sacrifice your personal rights for the glory of God and the salvation of others. Now, how do we do this practically? Practically, how do we do this? It starts with righteous living and then works itself outward to righteous speaking. And of course, that includes gospel sharing. It starts with righteous living. Why? Because you have to look at James closely and says, if you are not living it out, your faith is dead. Your faith is, if you are not living it out, you're just spreading words that have no weight. That's what honors God, living righteously, not just speaking righteous words. We pray, we fast, we cry out. Lord, save my spouse. Lord, save my parents. Lord, save my children. But the question for us today and always is, are we willing to go the extra mile? To go beyond what is required? To show the power of God that's working in us that hopefully God will visit them and save their souls and they'll be able to look at you and say, thank you for leading me. Thank you for loving me in my sin. Thank you for sharing the word with me, even when I didn't want to hear it. There are literally thousands of examples speaking of well-known heroes of the faith who laid down their lives for the benefit of others. But there are so many more who will remain unknown to the masses. Those who haven't uh, written a book about their great sacrifices, but God knows them well. Like the wife who has been preparing to be a professional all her life. She has the degrees, the certifications, uh, but she decides it's better to be a stay-at-home mom. Why? So she can teach her children to love and sacrifice their lives for Jesus Christ through her example. That's what Pastor Harry Fujiwara's wife, Janice, did. She went above and beyond what was required so that God may be glorified and prayerfully her children may be saved. What about the adult child who sacrificially does without the pleasures and conveniences of this world to take care of his or her aging parents? No books, blogs, or posts about it. No big announcements, just going the extra mile for the glory of God. But now here's the thing. Both of these examples are okay. They're okay. But the application from our text is that if your children, your children that you sacrifice your career for, or your parents who you cast off the good life for, are disrespectful and unappreciative towards you. But in the midst of that, you turn the other cheek, give them the clothing off your back, go the extra mile, and are generous towards them, using cautious wisdom, 
Now you're beginning to grasp what Jesus has done for every believer. And more importantly, now you're beginning to resemble, if you're doing it, the Christ of all grace and mercy who gave his life upon the cross for wretched sinners. The scriptures tell us clearly, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as put forth, put forward as a propitiation. That means God, God's wrath is satisfied. How? By Jesus' blood to be received by faith. In that same Romans 3 passage, when you get to verse 25, it goes on to say, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Yet we want to fight for our rights. We want to be justified. We want our, our revenge. We want our just due. We want them to pay and we want to see it. But if it wasn't for the grace and mercy of God, our just due would have sent us to hell a long time ago. Praise the Lord for his grace and mercy. The next time we visit Matthew's gospel, we'll be coming to what some say is the most important of all. For you have heard that it was said, but I say to you statements. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The only way we can even begin to do those things we covered today in verses 39 to 42 is by prayer. Praying for those who persecute you is hard. It's hard. But it is harder to hate your enemy when you're praying for them constantly and with all sincerity. More on that next time, but for now, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do want to bless you with our lives. We do want to honor you, Lord God, but it is so hard, Father. Your son said he must go away so that the spirit of truth could come. And praise God that the spirit of truth came. The Holy Spirit came, Lord, and we have been sealed. All who believe that Jesus Christ paid the, the, the price, the penalty for their sin and have been adopted. We have an inheritance so great in Christ. That the spirit of God has been sealed within us. He's not going anywhere. So the word says a few times not to grieve the Holy Spirit within. And sin, even the sin of seeking personal vengeance, grieves the Spirit of God. We're saying we don't trust you, God. We're saying we're stronger than you. We're wiser than you. Oh, ye of little faith, your word says to us. Father, please help us. The smallest amount of faith, the size of a mustard seed in Christ, can pull us through, can give us a great testimony of how we waited on the Lord. We don't want to be like the children of Israel who, who panicked every time a crisis arose. 
When Moses told them, stand still and see the salvation of God. May we do that, Lord. Please help us. We cannot do it apart from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, we will be taking an offering. I'll ask the ushers to come forward. You want to thank you for the support.